Yes, we're still in Romans. That was unnecessary, Hal. <laughs> the question should have been, are we still in Romans 9? <laughs> That's right. We are in Romans 9. And... Uh, and last week, uh, we looked at verses 14 uh, through 18, actually. Uh, and today, I would like to pick it up kind of where we left off in verses 17 and 18, because we talked about those verses last week, but there are a couple more uh, issues that I'd like to address in those verses before we... Go on, and then today we'll go on and pick uh, uh, on into verse 19, and uh, probably get down, hopefully get down through about verse 24. Uh, actually, according to your study sheet, I had I had us going through verse 26 today, but that ain't going to happen. <laughs> uh, but in all honesty, uh, I decided to break it at 24 because uh, beginning in Verse 25, we start picking up these quotations, these direct quotations from the Old Testament that Paul gives us as he begins to talk about the inclusion of the Gentiles. So it's really a good place to break at 24 if we get that far. My problem in preparing for this lesson today is there is just there's so much material. There are so many issues that come up in the verses that we're going to look at today. And there's so many related issues to to those issues uh, that my mind, as I was studying for it, my mind was just kind of swimming. And I'm going, Lord, how do I organize all these thoughts? How do I put all these thoughts together? And which ones are the ones that are really important for us to talk about? And to be honest with you, I don't have a complete answer to those things. So we're just going to see how it goes. Uh, Hopefully, uh, my thoughts today will be uh, at least coherent enough you can follow them, although they may not be uh, quite as organized as I, uh, as I would have liked them to be. But there's just so much. It's just kind of a flood of, of uh, issues that we deal with in these verses. So, but they are good verses and they deal with some fantastic truths of Scripture. Uh, let's... Uh, just go back for a few minutes and uh, just kind of skim down through chapter 9. Uh, I just want to kind of remind you where we are. Because you'll remember when we started chapter 9, I said, and of course this is true anytime you're studying any passage of Scripture, but, <clears throat> but I just wanted to remind us of this as we studied chapter 9 and 10 11 too, of course. But it's imperative when we're studying any part of chapter 9 that we give careful consideration to context. So we need to, at any given point or any verse or thought that he communicates, uh, particularly in chapter 9 where we are today, what we have to do is we have to think about what is the the immediate context? How does what he is saying here in this verse or in this sentence or in this phrase, or in this clause, how does this relate to the immediate context uh, of Romans chapter 9? And then the broader question was, how does it relate to the even broader context of the entire book of Romans? 
and and then ultimately how does it fit within the context of all of scripture so we can't just take any passage from or verse or thought from Romans chapter 9 or any passage of scripture for that matter and just lift it out of its context and just make it say whatever we want it to say and so one of the things I'm trying to do particularly in chapter 9 because I think this chapter has that people have done that a lot with this chapter. They just kind of see a verse and they just kind of take it by itself and kind of lift it out of its context and it just says something to them uh, uh, regardless of the context, the context and disregarding the context. And so particularly I'm trying as we go through chapter 9 to be very careful to say how does this fit with what he's already saying in the chapter? And how does this fit with what he's saying in the book as a whole? And how does this coincide with the rest of the revelation of God we have throughout Scripture? And, uh, and I don't think we're going to get a good interpretation of any point of Romans 9 unless we use those disciplines in our interpretation. Okay, So that's one of the things I'm trying to do. So let's just remember for a moment, he starts out at the beginning of the chapter and he talks about he's telling the truth in Christ and he talks about this great... Uh, concern, this great sorrow, this great grief that he has for his what he calls his brethren according to the flesh. And of course, he's talking about the Jews. And he mentions many of the things that, that many of the advantages that the Jews had there where he talks about uh, their adoption of sons and the fact that they had the glory. They had the Shekinah glory, the very visible presence of God with them in the wilderness. And of course, in the tabernacle in uh uh, uh, and then ultimately in the temple in Israel. Uh, and, uh, and they had the covenants and they had the giving of the law and they had the temple services uh, and they had all these promises. So they had all these advantages and yet somehow now it seems like God has abandoned them. He has, he has set them aside and He is now, uh, according to Paul, focusing on the Gentiles. And Paul says... He has a great concern. He has a great burden and a great grief uh, for Israel. But then the question arises in verse 6, whether or not God's word about Israel, God's word about His people, the Jews, has that word failed. And he is going to set forth in chapters 9, 10, and 11 his proof that God's word has not failed, that God is faithful to His promises, that He is faithful to Israel. And although things at this point look very bleak and very black, God has a purpose. He's working out that purpose. And ultimately, it's going to be obvious that His Word has not failed uh, towards Israel. And then He goes on to begin to talk about kind of the Israel within Israel. He says, they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And uh, so He begins to talk about this kind of uh, what, what he'll later call, and in the passage we'll hopefully look at next week, what he calls the remnant, these people within Israel who are really the true, the righteous ones, what we call the true spiritual Israel, or what I suggested last week we might call righteous Israel. And we'll see uh, next week why I choose that term uh, to refer to the remnant as righteous Israel. But... Uh, and and uh, and so then he then he begins his argument, and we'll review this more in detail in just a minute. He begins his argument of how we know that God has this smaller group within the larger group of Israel. How do we know He has this spiritual Israel or this 
remnant. And, uh, and how do we know that they are really the children of God rather than all the descendants of Abraham? And uh, so he begins to talk about that. And, and then the issues come up then about God's justice in making the choices that he makes. And that's kind of where we are. So the, the gist of what I'm trying to say and trying to remind us of here is that Paul is dealing with the subject of Israel and how that subject relates to the faithfulness of God to his word. So we could it would be easy for us as Gentiles living in the uh, 21st century to go, this has nothing to do with me because this is about Israel. But it has a great deal to do with us because it has to do with whether or not God is trustworthy and whether or not he's faithful. And as we'll see, it has to do with how we ended up getting included in this deal in, uh, uh, in, the, in the end. So, uh, so it is very important. But last week we were looking at verses, as I said, 14 through 18. So go back and look at those verses and think about some of the things we talked about last week and, and, uh, t- and tell me what are some of the things we talked about last week that kind of stick in your mind that you remember. Yeah. God doesn't deal with them. And on this case, it's so that he's having a greater glory. Yeah. So uh, you know, sometimes that's kind of reassuring that his purpose is still being fulfilled. Yeah. It doesn't look like he's doing anything. Yes. Good. Great. Good. So we did. We went back and we thought about that whole situation. We went back. Paul actually quotes here from the Old Testament. So we went back and we looked at that quote and we considered the context of, of uh, the situation with Pharaoh. We're going to talk a little bit more about Pharaoh today and about God's hardening. Uh, we want to reflect some more on that because I didn't completely say what I had to say on that subject. But, but the point uh, there that Mike is bringing out is that, that we know that as we go back and we look at the background of what Paul is referring to there when he's talking about Pharaoh, uh, that God comes, to, uh, God comes to Pharaoh through Moses uh, after the sixth plague. And after the sixth plague, he says to Pharaoh, he says, and you go back and you read it in Exodus and you see what he actually said was, I have kept you people alive. I've kept you and I have kept your people alive, meaning the Egyptians. I've kept you alive through these plagues and I have this intention of what I'm going to do uh, because I have a plan to use you to do two things, to demonstrate my power and to proclaim my name throughout the whole world. And so, uh, so what we discover then is that through those first six plagues, God could have at any point he wanted to, he could have at the very beginning when Moses first came in and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no dice. God could have at that very moment struck Pharaoh dead. But he did not. And as we'll see today, in the passage we're going to look at today, that God endured with patience a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. He endured Pharaoh's uh, uh, recalcitrance and hardness and obstinacy. He and God endured that because He had a purpose 
that he was going to use Pharaoh for. And, uh, and, and that's the point, of course, that Paul is making. And so God then begins to harden Pharaoh's heart further, it says. Uh, he already hardened his heart. Scripture says that Pharaoh had hardened his own heart. And then later it says God hardened his heart. And, uh, and that hardening then allowed the final four plagues to occur, particularly of greatest significance, uh, the plague of the slaughter or, or, the, or, the, uh, or the killing of the uh, firstborn. And, of course, that necessitated the Passover and everything that resulted from that. Okay. What else did we talk about last week? Okay. 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 Yes. Okay. Good. And and the point that he's making is, I have chosen. This is remember right after the incident with the golden calf. He says, I've, you know, I've chosen, I've decided I'm not going to wipe you out. Okay? Now, that's just not just some arbitrary choice God made. God made that choice in response to Moses' prayers and the repentance of the people. Okay? And so God says, I'm not going to wipe you out. And you can go on into the promised land. But I'm not going to go with you. And then Moses says, wait a minute, if you're not going to go with us, then don't lead us up from this place. And Moses is very insistent. And so then God says, okay, I will go with you. So now Moses has been kind of scared, uh, if, you, if you can kind of view it this way. He's had a close couple close calls. One is that the whole nation of Israel is going to be wiped out. And that God is saying, I'll, I'll make a great nation of you, Moses. And Moses says, no, no, wait a minute. I don't want that. I want, you know, I want your mercy on these people. And God does that. And then God says, okay, you can go, but I'm not going with him. No, 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 no. I, you know, I, don't lead us up from this place. So Moses has had a couple close calls here. And so he says at this point, God has made these promises. Okay, I'm not going to wipe you out and I will go with you. But Moses says, no, Moses is thinking, what I need right now is I need a very close encounter with God. And so he says, God, may I see your glory. And God says, yes, you can see my glory. And this is what I'm going to talk to you about. When you are seeing my glory, I'm going to talk to you about my mercy. I'm going to be saying to you, as you are seeing my glory, I'm going to be saying to you, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so what the passage is, is it's really an affirmation to Moses that God has chosen to have mercy on Israel in light of their great sin that they, create, that they committed with the golden calf there in Sinai and their subsequent repentance and, and, and Moses' intercession for them. So this is the background story. So when you see these quotes in Romans chapter 9, it's very easy to kind of lift them out of that context and make assumptions about what God is saying or presumptions about what God is saying without, re, without regard to the context. And so that's why we took some time to go back and think about those stories. What else? 
That's right. Okay. So what we begin to discover here, and we're going to talk a lot more about this today, is the idea of God's freedom in the choices he makes. And God is free in the choices he makes, as we will see, within a certain limit. God is not free to act counter to his nature. God always acts. He must act in accordance with his nature. But given God's nature, his nature of holiness, his nature of justice, his nature of love, his nature of mercy, given the whole composite, excuse me, given the whole composite of God's nature, he is free to act within uh, within the nature that he, that he is. Okay? And so we'll talk more about that today. Remember last week also we talked a little bit about how Paul is arguing his case. Remember what we said about that? Remember I drew some circles up here and we... Yeah, some positive feedback, some agreement with them initially. Okay, okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. Which is what you all wanted us to do, right? Okay. We talked about how when you have a disagreement with somebody and you want that to move them to your position, you want to move them to your viewpoint, the best way to do it is to start at the points where you agree and bring them along. Say, well, how about this? Well, yeah, we agree on this. And then, and then well, yeah, we agree on this. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't know what's going on here. But, but what Paul is doing here is he's speaking to the Jews and he's trying to bring them along by pointing out the things they know and that they agree with. So he starts, the question, where he's got to get them is that to this point where they acknowledge that the true children of God are, as far as the Jews are concerned, I'm not talking about the Gentiles yet, we'll get to that next week, but as far as the Jews are concerned, the true children of God are this little remnant within this whole larger context. And so we had the larger circle of Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants, but we found out that God gave a promise to Abraham that limited that. And it limited it only to the descendants through Sarah, right? He said, through Sarah, your descendants, your seed will be called. Okay? So he limited his circle by a promise he made to Sarah. And as Paul makes that point to the Jews, they're going, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. So yeah, God could choose to limit it to just the descendants through Sarah. Okay? But then he says, well, not only that, but there's Rebecca also. And she had two children at one time, okay, or two nations, he actually says. And, and he had two nations and he chose one and he excluded the other. And so he's limited that circle even more. And the Jew is going, mm-hmm, yeah, I agree with that. So he's bringing them along one step at a time with the points that they agree on. And eventually, he hasn't gotten there yet. He won't get there. He'll start to get there next week in the verses we hopefully will get to next week. But he's eventually going to get it down to that remnant. And he's going to show that the remnant is also determined by a promise. That promise is the gospel. And that those who, are, who believe the gospel are within that small remnant. So he's, that's where he's moving. And he's bringing the Jews along. But at a couple points, they stop and they object. And they say, well, what about the justice of God? Okay. And so that's the issue we were talking about last week. Well, now, this week, picking it up 
uh, well, that's getting ahead because I said there are a couple more things I wanted to point out about Pharaoh and about Hardin. Now, what God, what God did with Pharaoh is he said to Pharaoh there after the sixth plague, he said, I've kept you alive in order that I could make my power known and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And we talked last week at the end of the lesson, we talked about if God had not done that, we would not have had the Passover. Right? If God had not hardened Pharaoh and allowed Pharaoh to stand, we would not have had the Passover. And if we had not had the Passover, we would not have had the Passover lambs. But more significantly, had God not done that, and we pointed this out last week, we would not have had the Passover lamb. And we know that because there was a certain woman in Jericho who heard that news about Jehovah and she threw in her lot with Israel. And she became a mother in the Messianic line. That woman was the harlot Rahab. <laughs> Rahab, okay? That was the harlot Rahab. And what's striking about Rahab is she is the mother of Boaz. Whom did Boaz marry? Ruth, okay? Now, remember the story of Ruth and Naomi? Remember how when Naomi decided that she was going to come back from Moab and she was going to come back from Israel and she had these two daughters-in-law and, and, the, and, and finally she says, no, don't you, your, your home is here in Moab. You go back to Moab. And, and one of them did, what was her name, the one who went back? Orpha. Pardon? Orpha. Or, Orpha, yeah, okay. And so she decided to go back. But what did Ruth say? Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. It was her commitment of faith to the God of Israel. What was striking to me is that, is that the man she would ultimately marry, Boaz, his mother did the same thing. That's what Rahab did. Rahab says to Israel, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. So we have a pattern there. We have it with Rahab, who is the mother of Boaz, who eventually marries Ruth. Isn't that kind of cool? I was just thinking about that yesterday. I think that's just a cool thing. So at any rate, so we have Rahab. But Rahab makes that commitment of faith and she becomes part, not only part of Israel, but she becomes part of the Messianic line. The Christ comes through her. So without the Passover and without Pharaoh's obstinacy, we don't have a key element in the Messianic line. We don't have the Passover lamb. So, so the point is that God endured Pharaoh's obstinacy and used that obstinacy in order to save the world. Okay? And that's what he told Moses, or excuse me, that's what he told Pharaoh he was going to do. I'm going to do this so that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Now, the significance of this, the reason I wanted to go back and talk about this, 
is because what Paul is doing here in using the example of Pharaoh, he could have used any number of examples from the Old Testament, but he uses Pharaoh. And one of the interesting things about, uh, about Pharaoh is that he becomes for us, he's, he's kind of a foreshadowing in chapter 9 of what Paul is going to tell us about Israel in chapter 11. In other words, what happened with, what happened with Pharaoh was that God hardened Pharaoh in order that his name might be proclaimed and that all the nations, all the Gentiles would hear about the God of Israel, Yahweh. And what he's going to do when he gets to chapter 11, he doesn't do this overtly, but if we think we can see this is what Paul is doing, he's going to, when he gets to chapter 11, he's going to say that's exactly what he's doing now with Israel. So he's doing with Israel now in chapter 11 what he did with Pharaoh in chapter 9. He's allowing Israel to go on in its obstinacy in order that, as we'll see when we get to chapter 11, in order that all the Gentiles might hear. Okay? So, the reason he picks Pharaoh as his illustration here in chapter 9 is because Pharaoh is, in a sense for us, he is a, he is a picture of what Israel ultimately will become. Okay? So, just keep that in mind as we move forward. Paul, Paul has a remarkable way of arguing his point here, and I just, I'm just fascinated by it. So, he, he talks about Pharaoh, and what he's doing when he's talking about Pharaoh, he's giving us a foreshadowing of what he's going to say about Israel in chapter 11. Okay? Now, as I mentioned last week at the close, there are several things I wanted to mention about hardening. Because he talks about hardening Pharaoh's heart. And there are some important things I think we need to understand about this idea or this thought about hardening. Uh, and, and the first thing we should know, we should think about, is this is not a new thought to us. This didn't just come up in Romans chapter 9 that God hardens recalcitrant sinners. What do I mean by that? Well, that that we know already that when someone is stubbornly refusing the revelation of God, that God subsequently hardens them. How do we know that? Before we get to Romans 9. Romans 1. What are you talking about? Exactly. Flip back to Romans 1 just real quickly. And there's three verses there. They're very easy to remember because they're verses 24, 26, and 28. He says in verse 24, Therefore, in other words, because of what people had done so far, and what people had done so far is they had seen the, they had seen the message about God revealed in the creation and they, had, and they had denied that revelation. They had denied the revelation of God. And so in verse 24 it says, Therefore... Because of their recalcitrance, because of their rejection of the revelation, God gave them over, he says, uh, in the lust of their flesh to impurity. So, God is giving them over to greater sin. He's kind of releasing 
whatever restraint there was so that they get sucked into this greater sin as a result or because of their, their preliminary recalcitrance or refusal to believe the revelation. And then they go on and they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature. And so in verse 26 it says, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. And so we see the introduction here of, of homosexuality in verses 26 and 27. And then because they keep going on and they're more and more stubborn, it says in verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And so we see already in Romans chapter 1 that when someone rejects the revelation of God and stubbornly continues to do that, that God allows them to go further into their hardening, further into their sin. So this is not a new thing to us, is it? In fact, it's not new here either because we see it clear back in the Old Testament. We see it with the Jews. We see it with Pharaoh. We see it with Ahab. We see it over and over again in the Old Testament. The idea that when people reject the revelation of God, if they continue to persist in that, God gives them over. Or another way of saying it is, God hardens their hearts. Okay. So God, God acts in this way as people stubbornly refuse to submit to His revelation. God acts in such a way as to allow people to go further and further into sin. So this is one of the things that we have to remember about hardening that 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 this is something that is not new to us. It's not a new idea in Romans chapter 9. It's already been revealed to us. And what we understand about heart, whatever we do with the idea of God's hardening in chapter 9, has to be interpreted in light of the other things He says about hardening in other places in Scripture. We can't just lift chapter 9 out and make some assertions about God's hardening here independent of the rest of the context of Scripture, okay? So keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, I was debating the use of that word just yesterday. I was thinking, can you use the word passive there? Because it's clearly active here when he says, uh, the, the, the verb is active in Romans chapter 9 when he says God hardened, uh, God hardens whom He wills or whatever. That's clearly active. So, I'm reluctant to use the word passive, but on the other hand, we have to remember that God is never tempted by evil and He Himself never tempts anyone. Okay, So I think perhaps a good example is the story of Ahab when God, uh, when God wanted to use Ahab. He wanted, he, wanted to use a, excuse me, he wanted to use Ahab's prophets to entice Ahab to go to war so Ahab would be killed. Okay, And so you get this picture the prophet talks about this picture in heaven that he sees in heaven that God's having this conference and and he says, okay, who's going to go up and deceive Ahab for me? Okay, so God does not himself actually deceive Ahab, but he allows these demonic influences to be at work. So it's passive in the sense that God himself does not actually entice people to evil, but God does providentially or sovereignly allow situations to happen where that does happen. Does that answer your question? No. <laughs> you had a point, Herb? 
Oh, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Okay, that's a very, very good question. Okay. I think that it's highly fascinating that that scripture you're talking about actually allows us to have a glimpse and see what's going on behind the scenes. But there actually is a meeting. Yeah. Which, which uh, God chairs and makes decisions. Yeah. Well, we see the same thing with Job, don't we? You know, we don't get the picture. Job has no clue what's going on, but there's this conference going on in heaven between God and Satan. I think uh, Herb was going to make a comment here. Very good. Very good. Okay, you have to stop her because you're preaching my Sunday school lesson. So you need to stop. Because <laughs> that because that word patience is the very word that comes up in the passage. And that's exactly what he's going to deal with. He's going to deal with the patience of God, okay, as it pertains to these people whom God has hardened, okay? So, uh, Herb's absolutely right there, and this is actually where Paul is going uh, with this passage. So, let's, let's go on, uh, because I, I want to elaborate a little bit more on this subject of hardening. Uh, the second thing about hardening, the first thing is, Okay, we should expect this. We already know this. So let's not be surprised when we get to Romans 9 and find out God hardens people. We already know this. And we know why He hardens people. Okay? Well, we know one reason. We'll see another in just a minute. Okay? So, the other thing that's important to know about hardening, and this brings up the question uh, that we had just a moment ago, is, is hardening irrevocable? And the answer is no. Hardening is not irrevocable. How do we know hardening is not irrevocable? Well, we have several examples in Scripture where hardening, excuse me, is not irrevocable. And one of them is in Romans chapter uh, 1 and 2 and 3. What is the point of Romans 1, 2, and 3? Well, in in Romans 1, once Paul gets wound up and gets going, he's going to say, I'm going to talk about my gospel. And and, 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 and he he says, he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to share this gospel with you. And then he talks about the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men there in the middle of Romans chapter 1. And what, so what Paul then begins to set out in Romans chapter, second half of Romans chapter 1 and in Romans chapter 2 and the first part of Romans, first half of Romans chapter 3, what he begins to set out is the human predicament. And then, beginning in the middle of Romans chapter 3 and on through chapter 4 is God's solution to the human predicament, right? Which is what? The Gospel, right? That's God's solution to the human predicament. Okay. So, here's the human predicament. This is what Paul is communicating in those early chapters of Romans. Here's the human predicament. And here's the answer to the human predicament. In his discussion of the human predicament, 
is that passage we were just talking about in Romans chapter 1 about those whom God has given over to this greater and greater sin. In other words, some of these people who are in this predicament that Paul described are these people who have been hardened by God. And yet Paul's answer or Paul's argument is the gospel is the answer to this human predicament. And so, if I am one who has been hardened by God, that doesn't mean I am irrevocably hardened. I can still respond to the gospel, which is why Paul preaches the gospel to me. Because when he looks at me and he sees that I am one who has been so hardened, he nevertheless preaches the gospel to me in the confidence that if I will believe the gospel, I will be freed from that hardening. How do I know that? Well, one of the groups of people whom Paul makes very clear have been so hardened by God in Romans chapter 1 is homosexuals. Right? Are we saying homosexuals can't be saved? No, we believe they can be saved. In other words, we believe that people who have been so hardened that God has given them over to homosexuality are not irrevocably hardened. But if they will hear the gospel and believe the gospel, they can be delivered from that hardening which they have incurred. So, we now know that hardening is not something that we should be surprised at. And we know that hardening is not irrevocable. We have other examples. And Israel itself is going to be an example. By the time we get to chapter 11, we're going to find out that Israel, though it has been hardened... And is the and the very argument Paul's making that Israel's been hardened. By the time we get to the end of chapter eleven, Israel's going to get saved. So hardening is not irrevocable. Now the other thing is that hardening has two purposes, and we've already discussed one. Herb brought this up. Hardening has two purposes. In Romans chapter one, we see one purpose, which is God's wrath against sin, judgment judicial one purpose of God's hardening is judicial he is responding in his wrath to people's recalcitrance towards him and thus he hardens people that's what's happening in Romans chapter 1 right but there's another purpose and this is pretty cool there's another purpose for hardening, and that is salvific. Okay, this I, I get this word from Ryan. He likes to use it all the time. Okay, and he never defines it. What does it mean? What does it mean? Regards to salvation, right? Okay, regards to salvation. So you've heard Ryan throw that word at you every so often out there in the sanctuary. Okay, he uses the word salvific, and it's a good word. It means pertaining to salvation. <laughs> so, so uh, uh, God's hardening also has a salvific purpose. Okay, and we see this very clearly. We see it here in Romans nine. God hardens Pharaoh in order that what? Rahab can you say well not just Rahab because he wanted all the world but Rahab is our example of the fulfillment of that 
of that word of God that he was going to spread his fame throughout the whole world. And Rahab is our example, okay? So, Pharaoh's hardening occurred so that a bunch of Rahabs could get saved. So, hardening is both judicial and salvific. But it is not only salvific, it not only has a salvific purpose for the Rahabs, but it also has a salvific purpose for the Pharaohs. Now, unfortunately, as near as we can tell, with Pharaoh, he never took that opportunity. But the point of God's increasing wrath on people in Romans chapter 1 is in order that they might repent. So God is waiting to judge them with ultimate judgment, but is, but is releasing them into greater and greater sin. He's hardened them more and more, but He's doing it in order that they might get saved. How do I know that? Because that's what He tells us in Romans chapter 2. Go back to Romans chapter 2. He says in verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So we know that God rightly judges sin. Okay? But do you suppose, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So, in other words, he's described this predicament in chapter 1 that this process that people are going through of becoming more and more stubborn and more and more resistant to God. And God is allowing this to continue and He's patiently enduring this, as He says in Romans chapter 9. He's patiently enduring it. And why is He doing it? Because the kindness of God leads to repentance. In other words, as God allows this hardening process or causes this hardening process to continue... He is also waiting to judge. And as He is waiting to judge, He is giving people an opportunity to be saved. And now we know, we know, as we've already established, that hardening is not irrevocable. So, in other words, hardening has a judicial aspect to it, God's wrath against sin, but it has a salvific purpose to it, both for others who may somehow benefit, as Rahab does from Pharaoh's hardening, but it was also an opportunity for Pharaoh to repent. Of course, he never did. Okay? So, these are some things we need to understand about hardening. Lest we get this picture that God is just setting up in heaven and He is as near as we can tell, arbitrarily picking out some people to harden and some people to have mercy. And if he picks this person to have hardened, to harden, that person's just tough out of luck because God picked them to be hard and God has hardened them. And so they're just going to go to hell because God has decided that's what he wants to do with that person and he wants to have mercy and take this one to heaven. 
And oh, by the way, these over here, it's not just some others that are going to go to hell. But as we said last week, it is the vast, overwhelming majority of God's creation that He has arbitrarily, as near as we can tell, chosen to cast into hell. That is not what the Bible teaches about hardening. Hardening is not irrevocable. And it is possible by the grace of God to escape the judgment of hardening. The same way everybody escapes the wrath of God is by the reception of God's mercy. Yeah. The Apostle Paul himself, he was hardened for the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good example. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, that was all the rest of last week's lesson, and we're almost out of time, okay? So we're not going to get very far here, but let's get started in these next verses, okay? Because if those last few verses were tough, these are even tougher, okay? <laughs> so he says in verse 19, he says, uh, maybe I should go to chapter 9 instead of chapter 2, and that'll help. Okay. Uh, he says, you will say then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? For does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, though willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What's he talking about there? What's he alluding to? When you read this, vessels of wrath, he's enduring with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What comes to your mind? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Exactly. Okay. Pharaoh comes to example. Not... Not... Some individual, not just any individual out there. Paul is referring to two things here. He's referring to Pharaoh, whose argument, the argument he's already used, and he's getting ready to use this to refer to Israel. Okay? That's who he's talking about. All right? So he says, uh, What if God, though willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for his glory, even us, whom he has also called not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. And we're going to finally begin to introduce the Gentiles, but we won't get to that today. Okay, so, so now Paul, you know, he's, going, he's doing this, this, uh, this kind of diatribe presentation that he's been doing all the way through Romans, okay, where he's got this kind of, this interlocutor, this, this opponent out here who he's having this debate with. But he's, he's, he's kind of an imaginary. In other words, he's not actually got somebody specifically here that he's dealing with, that he's answering. But on the other hand, as Paul answers these questions that he himself raises with this, this imaginary opponent that he's got, Paul does have specific questions in mind that certainly have been addressed to him as he has gone about preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and faced the opposition of the Jews. I have no doubt that Paul probably had this question thrown at him at some point. Okay? 
So he brings it up because he imagines that somebody somewhere reading the book of Romans is going to have this question. Okay? So he brings up this question, but it's not really a question, as we'll see. It's really an accusation. Okay? So the question is, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? So Paul sees this opponent out here, and we're going to kind of flesh out this opponent here in a minute. But Paul sees this opponent out here, and this opponent, having heard what Paul just said, that God hardens whom he wills, and has, he has mercy upon whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills, in verse 18, that he's got this opponent out here, and he goes, well, what basis does God have then to judge? How can God find fault? I mean, who resists God's will? Now, there's an underlying premise to that accusation or that charge, and I say it is a charge really more than a question, and you'll see why I say that in a minute. But the underlying premise is this, and it is a valid premise, I believe. You cannot have human responsibility without human freedom. can't have human responsibility. You cannot be accountable for what you cannot do. Okay? We know that instinctively. We know that. Okay. So even most Calvinists who, who, who are in many ways very deterministic in their thinking acknowledge, many, probably most Calvinists acknowledge that there is some need for human freedom. So they have come up with a kind of freedom that we call compatibilistic freedom, okay? Compatibilistic freedom gets its name from the idea of a kind of freedom that is compatible with determinism, okay? That's where we get the term compatibilistic freedom. I'm not going to go into explain the difference between compatibilistic freedom and true libertarian freedom, which uh, really is kind of what's at issue here. But all I'm trying to illustrate to you, the point is that we just know instinctively it's a brute fact, folks. You cannot have responsibility without freedom. We just know that. And so, the, uh, the opponent here seizes upon this principle that you cannot have human responsibility without freedom. Thinks, or is accusing Paul of denying human freedom and then says, God is unjust. If I cannot choose my destiny, God is unjust. He is in no place to find fault with how I've turned out because God has turned me out this way. Okay. Now, what is interesting to me is Paul's response. And I call it Paul's response because it's not Paul's answer. <laughs> Paul does not really answer the question. He responds to the question. And when Paul responds to the question, he responds to the question by alluding to a couple verses back in Isaiah. Okay? And in those two verses back in Isaiah, uh, one of them is uh, uh, 
Isaiah chapter uh, 19, uh, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 29, uh, verse 16, and the other is Isaiah 45, verse 9. And in those two cases, Isaiah is rebuking the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. He's rebuking the Jewish nation because they have basically usurped the position of God. They have overthrown God and taken his place. And Isaiah objects and he says basically kind of what Paul says here. Who are you? You are not the potter. You are the clay. And you are, here you are the clay and you are making the, these assertions about the potter or you are denying the potter's prerogative to do what he wants to do. And so Paul's response in Romans chapter 9 to the suggestion that God has no basis to judge is not a reasoned answer explaining why God does have a basis to judge. It is rather a prophetic rebuke. Paul is rebuking the person who would suggest that God, who is God and who is the potter in this analogy, does not have the freedom to act as he chooses to act. He's got that freedom. Now, we're not going to be able to unpack this completely today because we're out of time. But let me just let me just uh, hit on a couple things here. One is what Paul is arguing here in these verses is the freedom of God. Or you can take out the word freedom and put in the word sovereignty if you want. The sovereignty of God, or we might say the free sovereignty of God, to do what he wants with his creation. Okay? Paul's emphatic on this. And anybody, any puny little human being who stands up and goes, you can't do that, God. That ain't just. Has stepped out of bounds. Okay? So, so Paul is arguing emphatically the freedom of God to choose what he wants to choose and to do what he wants to do. But it's also important for us to remember what Paul is not saying here. What he is not arguing here. He is arguing that God is free to choose. He is not saying anything here about how God makes that choice. Now, if we just lift these verses out of their context and ignore the verses that follow immediately after it, or in all of chapter 10, where Paul goes into great detail about how the Jews did not attain righteousness because they did not seek it by faith, but the Gentiles who were not seeking righteousness did attain it because they did get it by faith. And Paul begins to argue all over again this doctrine of salvation by faith that he argued in chapter 4, and he begins to argue it again in chapter 10, but specifically in reference to the Jews and the Gentiles as groups. He begins to tell us 
how God makes that choice. But he's not telling us that in these verses in Romans 9. In Romans 9, he's just saying God's free to make this choice any way he wants. And what Paul's got is he's got some Jews over here and they're going, no, God can't choose to do that. God can't save people by faith. He's got to save me because I'm a Jew. And I keep the law. And Paul is saying, no, God has made a choice. Just like he made a choice with Sarah to exclude some of the descendants of Abraham. Just like he made a choice with Rebekah to exclude some of the descendants of Rebekah, of Sarah. So he has made another choice. And that choice is to save people based on faith. And that excludes everybody, even the descendants of Jacob, who is not saved by faith. And that's a choice God can make. So his argument here is God is free to choose. And you cannot point a finger at God and say he's been unjust because you are the potter. You are the clay and he's the potter. Next week, we'll go into this whole analogy. There's a lot of things we need to consider about this analogy of the potter and the clay. There's a lot of assumptions made about it that aren't valid based on the way that analogy is used throughout Scripture. And so we'll go into that next week and look at this passage more.